welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and joining me not from Venus, but that doesn't make her any less stellar, is Lydia. Whatever you say, Christopher. (laughs) 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 My favorite line. You will become one of us. (laughs) Whatever you say. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, Lydia? Doing all right. Fantastic to hear your voice again. Uh, It's been a while. We've been, it feels like it's been it a while. Has. Well, I've been in the process of moving, so uh, apologies to all of our listeners for the little bit of a gap. I know you've missed me. Ha, ha, ha. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, big big changes moving to different state and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it has been a while, but I'm glad to be back. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, I think we're going to have a fun time this month. Uh, before we get into the film, I, of course, want to remind people that they can join us on our Facebook group. Uh, go to Facebook and search for Orphan Entertainment. And if you have any feedback or want to send us an MP3 or even just a, the typey-typey email, you can send those to, uh, to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. And if you want to know where the best place to watch some of the films that we are covering, you can go and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I always make sure to put the film up at least a week or two before we uh, record. So if you get a chance to watch it, if you have any feedback or anything on their comments on the film, you can get it to us. If you get it to us before we record, <laughs> well, you'll, you'll hear about it. <laughs> Believe me. Uh, I think the only other thing I want to mention is right now, if you go over to the podcast cinema psyops, which I think I've, I've mentioned before here on the podcast and uh, one of their hosts court who uh, he's the one that sent us those sent and sent into us those great mp3s on rain yeah if you remember yeah he uh, asked me to come on his podcast and discuss a a film it, he's kind of doing a series of bring your own cinematic um wounds or uh, nightmares <laughs> yeah you know the films that you watched when you were younger and kind of sort of scarred you a little bit and so i came on to discuss john carpenter's prince of darkness with him and his co-host matt and that was a really great time that just went down the time that we're recording this, it just went down the weekend prior. So it, it is available. Uh, it, a lot of fun. It, not safe for work. I, I got a chance to kind of um, uh, let, let the curses fly a little bit and everything, too. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> so if you if you listen to podcasts uh, with the family, this is not the one. But I wanted to give them a shout out. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Court and Matt, for having me uh, having me in and on your, on your show. And it was a lot of fun. And hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again and maybe I'll even return the favor for him at some point. I'm kind of shocked that you didn't take them the all American family band or little Marines or something like that. Those are the ones that <laughs> scarred me. Of course we weren't allowed to watch horror when I was a kid. So a uh, little see, different. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. A little different, a little different. All right. Well, uh, speaking of cinema psyops, I think I'll play, I will play their promo uh, maybe, and maybe one other. And then when we get, come back, we are going to discuss Zontar, the thing from Venus. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. 
It takes a powerful goddess like Connie jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B-Movie Reel. Do something. Shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Eat known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. <laughs> what could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. The future depends on it. Make it safe. All right, we are back. All right, Zontar, The Thing from Venus, is a low-budget color remake of the Roger Corman's 1956 film, It Conquered the World. So if you thought it conquered the world, if you've ever seen that, if you thought that looked low budget, well, (laughs) (laughs) you're in for a surprise. Of course, the original Roger Corman had uh, Peter Graves and Lee Van Cleef in the starring roles. We uh, take maybe, well, I'm not going to say John Agar is a step down from Peter Graves, but maybe the rest of the cast (laughs) might be a step. Maybe just in in fame, in the sense of fame, they're less well-known. And some of them... Practically, yeah. Depends on the circles you spin in, I think. Jam, John Agar is very popular among a lot of the classic uh, monster and B-movie fans. I know he's he's kind of regarded as one of the patron saints over at Monster Kid Radio. <laughs> so there's a lot of people that like John Agar. This film was directed by Larry Buchanan. He was a director, producer, and writer. And he was a self-proclaimed schlockmeister. He, some of his films include In the Year 2089, the Eye Creatures, Zontar, The Thing from Venus, Curse of the Swamp Creature, and Mars Needs Women. I think Larry Buchanan's name is a name that you will probably hear more than once on Orphan Entertainment because <laughs> a great many of his um, oh famous or infamous, uh, infamous? films are uh, are available in the public domain. So I think we'll I think we'll be seeing him uh, more of him. He was raised in Dallas, Texas in an orphanage, and it was while growing up in that orphanage that he kind of became fascinated with the movies. They would show movies there at the orphanage's theater, I guess, on you know special nights. Friday night, they'd have a film or something like that. Like prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, orphan- I've heard stories of you know orphanages in the, fifth, in the 40s and 50s, so who knows? <laughs> He actually landed a job in the props department at 20th Century Fox when he was older, and it was 
while working there that he kind of was able to crack into the film business. Uh, many of his films were largely remakes of AIP films from about a decade earlier. So that would make sense. You know, like It Conquered the World was 56. This is 66 here. He did have some interesting films of his own. In 64, Buchanan created The Trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, which presented an alternate history in which John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald both survived the assassination. Uh, The prosecution asserts Oswald committed the crime due to his Marxist beliefs, while Oswald's attorney presents an insanity defense, claiming he suffered from untreated paranoid schizophrenia. Well, the viewer apparently acts as the juror, so you don't actually get a verdict in the film. That's really interesting. (laughs) Now you decide. (laughs) Exactly. I think I'm going to have to look that one up. That will be an interesting film to see. I'm curious, that's for sure. I hate yeah. those endings, but just for the sake of the, <laughs> for the sake of the arguments and, and the curiosity, because of course. It's... Uh, flash forward to nineteen eighty four. He produced a film called Down on Us, which charged that the U.S. government was responsible for the deaths of Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Janis Joplin. Now, interesting individual, Mister Buchanan. <laughs> I, I would think that sounds more political than anything else. Mm-hmm. Was it? Does it? denote whether it's intended as fictional entertainment or political uh that i don't know i didn't get a chance to really dig (laughs) Dig into into, well we're talking about a different one of his films today exactly (laughs) i do want to talk about one of the stars we've mentioned him john agar john agar i like the way he kind of broke he got into acting apparently john agar's sister was a schoolmate of shirley temple and in 44 uh, Agar escorted Shirley Temple to a party that was being held by her boss at the time, David Olselznik. Well, Temple and Agar fell in love and were married a year later. I did not know that. Yeah, me either. I, I guess as sort of a favor to uh, Miss Temple, Selznick signed Agar to a five-year acting contract, uh, giving him 150 bucks a week, and that included acting lessons. Yeah. <laughs> very generous for the time. Also very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Agar and Temple worked together in the film Fort Apache along with John Wayne. And Agar would later uh, work with John Wayne again. In two more hits, she wore a yellow ribbon in Sands of Iwo Jima. So I have seen something with him, something else mm-hmm. with him in it. I've seen she wore a yellow ribbon. Interesting. There you go. Uh, the marriage, unfortunately, uh, didn't last. Uh, they broke up in, in part because of Agar's drinking. He apparently recently been, not recently, recently at the time, been arrested for drunk driving. And, of course, the pressures of the high public profile a temple sued for divorce on the grounds of mental cruelty in 1949. Uh, well, apparently, uh, being divorced from uh, what used to be America's sweetheart, Shirley Temple, does come with its uh, downfalls. His career kind of suffered in the wake of what was a, probably at the time a pretty public divorce. In the late 40s, yeah, and also mm-hmm. fairly scandalous for the time period. Right. Yeah, he ended up finding himself kind of just uh, in the low-budget science fiction, western, and horror movies through the 50s and 60s. And his, But his friend John Wayne did give him several supporting roles in the late 60s and 70s. I have a quote here from Mr. Agar, who uh, says, I don't resent being identified with B science fiction movies at all. Why should I? Even though they were not considered top of the line, for those people that like sci-fi, I guess they were fun. My whole feeling about working as an actor is if I give anybody an enjoyment, I'm doing my job. That's what counts. 
So I do like his attitude. Absolutely. And I definitely get the impression, uh, even from this film, that he's he is the kind of kind of actor that if you're good, if you pay him, he's going to show up. He's going <laughs> to do his job and he's going to going to do his job well. He's not going to phone it in. And I appreciate that kind of uh, mentality among actors. You, you you saw that even in like things with a uh, like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. We've seen them in some Christopher Lee films that were kind of like God. What are you doing here, Chris? But you know, <laughs> he he was paid. He came and what he did, he did really well because that's what he did. Well, I think even in, he was an actor. Yeah, even in this movie, you know, he is the top build, but also uh, I felt the best talent of the group. Particularly sure. the second time I watched, I really noticed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, there was a there was a fairly low bar set by uh, some of the actors in this film, so J- John Agar would certainly stand out on top. Yeah. Easily. All right. Well, we will get into a little bit of the plot of Zontar, the thing from Venus. The film opens up at the Zone Six Orbital Rocket Control and Tracking Station where we meet a team of scientists, including our hero, Kurt Taylor, played by John Agar, as a uh, prep for the launch of a satellite. It's a laser communications satellite, apparently. I like how they start this and they kind of trip you out a little bit because right off they say there's a UFO in the rocket launch sector. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So there's an unidentified uh, something. I think they say unidentified flying objects. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. Good, good point. Uh, you did say UFO. Never mind. No, no, I <laughs> that's, think, that's well, what no, that I means, doesn't it? That they, <laughs> yeah, well, no, I was surprised that they used that terminology. But, of course, it turns out it is not an alien spaceship. It's just a regularly scheduled commercial flight. That's right. That's a little straight off course slightly or something. Yes. <laughs> and then what does he say? Uh, one of the guys says, this this little baby cost us $50 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> something about if they bumped into each other, what would happen? Oh yeah, <laughs> well, fifty million bucks in nineteen sixty-six. That's that's good. Money. Quite a bit of money. Yes. Well, Kurt's friend and I'm guessing fellow scientist Keith Ritchie uh, visits the lab and implores Kurt to call off the launch. Insists that a previous launch that exploded in orbit was a warning from another world that we should stay put and not venture into space just yet. His uh, argument is that we're not technologically advanced enough. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. That, that, that apparently the, the other worlds are saying, no, that we're too immature to, to reach out into space just yet. Well, you know, what I, what... you know what I have to say to that? <laughs> 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 Don't call me immature. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's not good. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this issue resolves itself pretty quickly when the launch actually happens and the satellite is successfully put into orbit. We flash forward to several months later. Kurt and his lovely wife, Anne, have joined Keith and his wife, Martha, for dinner. Kurt picks up on uh, a rather smug attitude from Keith. And despite Martha, Martha's urging to not talk about it, Keith confides in Kurt that he has been in contact with what he believes to be an intelligence from planet Venus. <laughs> I'm probably going to comment quite a bit on the ladies in this movie. They play a larger role than you would initially think, but it is interesting. Oh, they do. They, Huge, they yeah. do, especially, you know, as the story progresses. But uh, it was interesting as, you know, his wife is 
just, you know, sort of embarrassed about keep talking about this. You know, right. and she's, oh, you know, oh, not again. Please, let's talk about something else. I'm so tired of listening to this. And my first thought is this girl is a bimbo. Like, why is she so, she's overreacting to this way too much. Of course, the second time I watch it, you pick up on some nuances that you don't necessarily get the first time. Uh, but yeah, the whole time she's so, you know, I love that uh, she's so adamant against it. And so, um, Kurt, is, is it Kurt or Kirk? Kurt. The first time I started watching it, I thought, Kirk. Now, wait a minute. This was made in 1966, and Star Trek started in 1967. 60. <laughs> I was like, hmm. But anyway, no, had the name wrong as Kurt. But Kurt's wife says, oh, come on, let's go do the dishes. <laughs> and the yeah. like, oh, don't be so upset. Let's go do the dishes. <laughs> I'll love, help you clean the table. The whole And the, kind of the whole, that's kind of a recurring theme in this, where the the women in this movie are not terribly well thought out. Although they do play a major part, they're very... They're still you know, 50s or 60s women. Well, and, and you can or, tell they were very much written by a couple of men. And mm-hmm. probably, no offense guys, probably a couple of single men. <laughs> There's a, it's very... They, they give off the impression that they're in a commercial constantly. But I think it's the way that they're written. But it is interesting just so when you're wa- when I'm watching this, I keep thinking, why is she so annoyed with him until, of course, the second time I see it? No, yeah, I, I liked Martha and her. It was almost sort of a quiet. No, no, Keith, please don't. Yeah. You know, <laughs> almost if if she could have quiet, if she could have whispered, she would have. But, you know, they're all around the same table. She's like, no, just let's. No, oh, she gave him that. the exact same look I give my husband sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Just, oh, <laughs> no, come on, please don't talk about that again. <laughs> uh, and I do like the fact that, uh, and then you talk about the other uh, wife, Anne, who she's kind of, I think she picks up on it a little bit from Martha yeah. and she, but she goes and tries to do, tries to, turn it into something a little humorous and like oh i've all i've heard is lasers and satellites Mm -hmm. and you got anything in those in that bag of tricks for a headache yeah i mean she tries to she tries to help martha she tries to turn the conversation herself but does it in a a different way and i i I like that i like dan a lot actually in this film we'll get to her or her later as you begin to understand more of why oh gosh and i can't remember keith's wife's name you would think Martha. Martha, thank you. She didn't look like a Martha. That's why it, it throws me. <laughs> no, she doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> but, right. You know, Martha, at first, that was the funny part is when they introduce you here, she's just like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Why are you always talking about intelligent things? Um, you know, and they really introduce them as the men are, you know, the women go off and do something frivolous, but the men are standing there talking intelligently. But, mm-hmm. you know, as it progresses, you understand more of her attitude. Keith uh, shows Kurt a very powerful looking communication set. <laughs> what I do love. I mean, it is a big set the size of a closet. But I guess in 1966, yeah, that is an impressive set. Yeah, well, he says Kirk will understand. I love it, though, because I was like, at one point he says, are you hearing this? Do you hear it? And he says, what is this, progressive jazz? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yep, that's, uh, it looks just like a stereo. You're exactly right. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and play that clip right here. It'll be just a second. I got a second. There it is. Do you have any idea what it is? What you're actually hearing? Some kind of progressive jazz? It's Venus. 
by laser communication without a satellite. Oh, come on, Haki. Venus, I don't mean the static. Can't you hear it? The other thing? What other thing? Listen to it, Kurt. Listen to the voice. Oh, stop it, Keith. If it is a voice, it's unintelligible. Forget it. Kurt, listen to me. I've been in constant communication with him now for over two months. I don't know exactly how I understand, but it's a form of hyperspace hypnotism. I do know that I do understand. All right, Keith, so you've got a little friend on Venus. What does he want from us? Has he got a name? Or is it just an it? Or maybe it's a she. I'm sorry you don't believe me, Kurt. He knows exactly what he wants, and he's about to make a move to get it. And although his name is untranslatable into any known Earth language, it would sound something like Zontar. Hello? Well, Kurt gets an emergency phone call from the installation. The satellite has gone missing. Well, Kurt and Ann leave and they and, and head out. They got to go to the installation. Uh, Keith believes that this is a sign that Zontar has made his move and is on his way to Earth. Yeah, Keith does a lot of um, no one else is in the room. He likes to talk to himself. Well, kind of. He said, "Well, and it's interesting because I I think they they do that as rather than having the the voiceover, they have him translating for Zontar." Oh, sure. Well, at the lab, the scientists are trying to figure out just what happened and where the satellite went. An army general arrives at the scene as one of the scientists declares that she just can't understand it. I expected him to say, of course you didn't. You're a woman. <laughs> well, he practically he did. Says, I think his quote don't. is, well, of course you don't. No one understands it. But, I, but it's the scientific achievement of the century. We have to find it. <laughs> totally expected him to say, though, in this particular situation, with the kind of treatment of the women in the scene prior to this, I totally expected him to say, of course you don't. You're a woman. Yeah. (laughs) Back at Keith's, Martha makes her first attempt that we see to talk uh, some sense into Keith, but he assures her that things will be better soon. Very much better. (laughs) And she says, please come back to me. Yes. Please come back to me. And then, uh, you know, there's a fade to black in this scene. Did you yes, notice? Yes, there is. Yes. So that was interesting, I thought. Mm-hmm. He's still, uh, you know, he's he's communicating with Zontar, and even though she talks about how obsessed he is, he's still sort of reachable. Exactly. Back at the lab, Kurt and the gang discover that the satellite has appeared as quickly as it vanished. Uh, they decide to bring the thing down to examine it, and after giving that order... Kurt heads home. <laughs> did you did you like that? It, like, they, it kind of skips back and forth, yeah. It does, and, but you know, Kurt's there. He's like, "Well, maybe it's a you know a relay's gone bad." No, no, it's back. Oh, well, we should bring it down and examine it. You know how to do that, right? Yeah, good. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> it was okay. Sixties. You went home at five. <laughs> yeah, fifty million dollar satellite just, just disappeared. Everyone's worried about it. Now we got to bring it back down to earth and. You handle it. I'm off to bed. (laughs) Well, he does have Anne waiting at home anxiously for him. He is off the ship, too. It's worth noting. That's true. That's true. That's true. (laughs) But I love that uh, after this, Keith, you know, says that, well, 
he says, you know, it, it, it's all happened. Zontar has made his move. He brought the satellite to Venus and back within an hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. Keith is on his super hi-fi there, uh, speaking with Zontar. And this is a great, you know, we've always had fun uh, watching actors on the phone. So he, Keith has to do sort of the phone thing with, with the Zontar. radio set. With Zontar. <laughs> yes. yes, that's right. Yes, okay, so you 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 went to Venus and back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to repeat everything that you were apparently telling me. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, Martha, <laughs> tries, Martha tries once again, but I, I think she's starting to be uh, convinced that Keith is bordering on insanity here. Well, while trying to bring the satellite down, uh, it leaves computer control and it appears to have a mind of its own. Once again, it disappears as it, as it comes down from orbit. Keith, back at home, is thrilled to learn that Zontar has landed in a local cave. And I think he, I'm not sure if it's this time, or maybe he does it several times, but he literally does hand-wringing. He does that excellent <laughs> with the hand <laughs> I have to admit, I, I watched it twice and I didn't notice. Yeah, he actually does the literal, he's he's excited, sort of like, oh, excellent, no, Zontar right. has arrived. <laughs> and, he's, and he wrings his hands. He actually, he kind of rubs them in anticipation. Exactly. <laughs> Now, I mentioned the low bar of acting in this film. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, Keith, I think, is the low bar here. <laughs> I agree. He is not a very good actor. He's only got a handful, like maybe eight credits or something on IMDb. And did not do a lot of work. Kind of becoming apparent why. <laughs> you kind of get the impression that he's supposed to be presenting himself as of dubious character. And there's a point here in this scene, I believe when he says all our dreams for protect for not protection, I'm sorry for perfection will now be realized. And it made Mm -hmm. me think we have dreams for perfection. (laughs) Sure. I suppose physical, physical perfection and, and logical and intellectual, but it was just interesting to, Mm -hmm. it was, it's, I suppose it's a very iconic of the time looking for that perfect life and, easy things that just, you know, mechanical assistance, everything does everything for itself and you don't have to do anything but push a button and right. sort of the same mentality. Yeah, there you Zontar go. is going to make us all perfect. Right. Well, soon after, uh, soon after we find that Zontar has landed, all forms of power stop. Electricity, water, cars, the... Everything comes to a comes to a halt all around the well. We see it all around the town, but we're led to believe, I believe, that it is the entire world. They do mention at least it's the entire region, and and this is when panic breaks out and people begin running through the streets. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, wouldn't you? And I, yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose though, you know, I'm a victim of my time. I I know at that point to start barring up the windows to keep the zombies yeah, from in. <laughs> Well, Kurt and Anne find themselves stranded on the uh, on the road, uh, and the lab is out too, including all the phones. Kurt and Anne decide that they're pretty close to Keith's house, so they'll head there and see if they can't get a ride or something. And then in town, we see uh, we meet the local sheriff, who bumps into Martha, somehow made it to town and all this, and uh, 
he asks her if, you know, hey, your your husband's been saying something like this is going to happen. Do you know what's going to happen next? And she admits uh, she has no idea and uh, leaves frantically. We see Keith on his hi-fi give Zontar the names of people who he, of whom he considers the important uh, ones in the area that if controlled with some sort of uh, organic devices of Zontar's, will allow complete control of the area. And that leads us right into our next clip. Yes, I have the names of the control units in this immediate area. The mayor of Jackson is Sidney Parker. The chief of police is Brad Crenshaw. They're very important for controlling the town. The chief security officer of the installation is General Matt Young. And the head of the laser project is Dr. Kurt Taylor. Along with their wives, that's eight people. All that's necessary for complete control of this area. As I understand it, you're now hosting eight control devices. Is this correct? I would like to see one of the injectopods. They actually grow as part of you and then separate on command, don't they? Fantastic. Now I have the general locations of the control units. Well, we get our first glimpse of Zontar in the cave as some of these controlled units detach themselves from his body. The injectopods fly off. And here's where we, I think we start seeing some of the panic you were talking about. The town starts to panic. The sheriff is doing his best to keep everyone calm. There's this, this is a scene I just I get a kick out of this. An older woman comes up and she's my my husband is on an iron lung and it stopped working. What do I do? And the sheriff turns to her. He says, "Well, I think those can be operated by manually for a while. You keep on it. And I'll see if I can find help." And he runs off. And she kind of does a half turn and looks and, and it has this poor. Uh, sad look on her face. It's so. It's like, oh, poor grandma. I didn't even. <laughs> I didn't even catch the look, but I did catch that a little bit earlier. A couple of guys over at the base are talking, and they say everything is shut down. Even the hand crank doesn't work. Right. And then they make the iron lung comment, and I thought, well, gosh, everybody on iron lungs just died because the hand cranks exactly. don't work. <laughs> That is actually something they skip right over the really darker elements of the fact that the power has stopped possibly all around the world. So I'm thinking planes are dropping out of the sky. Yeah. Hospitals have have shut down. Uh, there are you know ships at sea that are now floating aimlessly. <laughs> so uh, there's hello Zontar is not a nice guy. At least uh, in the day the Earth stood still. Uh, Gorton Klaatu were kind enough to let the hospitals and stuff keep working. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, Keith does mention at this point that Zontar has stopped the power selectively because their car Mm. still works. And, uh, and, and it, it, you know, is, yes, I believe he, uh, he, finds uh, Martha in town and they head to the car and she's like, well, no, the cars are working. It's like, mine will. It's not been de-energized. De-energized. <laughs> yeah. And then, and so, you know, Curtin and, and Anne are heading that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I have these in different orders. So maybe I've got them backwards. Well, I tell you what, it's a little difficult because there's so much jumping back and forth to Keith and then a town 
and Keith at home, and then Keith in town, and then Kurt and Anne. It, it is actually kind of a little difficult it's to worth, try to keep some of the stuff in order. And we're leaving out entire scenes. It's worth probably oh, mentioning oh, are, the direction. There's a whole scene with some army grunts. There are a few scenes with some army grunts, and they're, in fact, the guys, yeah. for, for lack of a better term, sorry. Sorry, army... Uh, Sorry, sorry, people Soldiers. currently serving. I don't mean to imply that everybody is, but anyway, uh, should we ha- start having apologies at the end of these? <laughs> so there are a couple of, you know, they are probably cast as grunt, number one, grunt number two, you know, and they're the ones that mention that even the hand cranks don't work to, for the power. So it's interesting because Zontar shut off not only power, but anything mechanical. So anything that right. would be used to generate power doesn't even work. Exactly. And then, you know, I, I love it because Kurt and Anne show up. Well, it's, it's, you're right. It's worth mentioning the direction in this movie is very, is relatively fast paced. But it, they're haphazard yeah, a little bit, maybe a little haphazard, but definitely choppy there. Mm-hmm. You, and, I, you know, it feels like they for the speed of the conversations, that was probably a better decision because you don't get super bored during the conversations. Right. But it definitely, it's hard to track. Okay. You know, at one point, I seriously have a note here that says people are running in, in like for the, the time marker when they first start running in terror, the whole town is running in terror. I think at 30, it, no, I'm sorry, at like 22 minutes. And then it cuts to the town running in terror again at like 40 minutes. So for like 20 yes. minutes, everybody's just, <laughs> it's probably longer They're than still that. running. The yeah. whole day, they're just running back and forth in terror. <laughs> Nobody ever stops. Uh-huh. Yeah, I noticed that too. Kurt and Anne are walking along the road heading for Keith, and they spot one of these control devices flying around. Not knowing what it is, but not liking the look of it, Kurt flings a stick at it and nearly clobbers his wife doing it. Did you notice that? Oh, no. Oh, gosh. (laughs) He he whips back his arm with the stick, and if she didn't duck, she would have got it right in the side (laughs) of her head. Oh, my goodness. Well, Keith and Martha return home, and we discover, uh, thanks to the Keith there, that his car and his home will still work because Zontar can stop power selectively, as, uh, as Lydia mentioned. So he's... So he stops the power selectively, but it lets everybody in an iron lung die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, Kurt and Anne arrive and make it to Keith's house, and they go in and have a drink. <laughs> I know. We can't We can't give you, I forget what he says, I can't give you such and such, but I can offer you a drink. And they're like, right. we'll take that instead. <laughs> yep. Oh, I could use one of those. <laughs> All right. Never mind. Whatever. Oh, he's trying to get to the... Uh, to the station and right can you yeah can you give me a lift to the lab, lab. Like, oh, nope. no can't do that nope. but i can give you some alcohol <laughs> yeah oh, okay <laughs> i love it there's the line here too and keith says you know do, do we have some time we have all the time in the world we have time for explanations perhaps even time for understanding mm-hmm. like all like suggestive like maybe kurt's gonna get it this time because he's right. only told him probably five or ten times but this time kurt will probably <laughs> get it well, we do meet a couple of the soldiers that Lydia mentioned earlier, uh, enjoying a picture of, I think, Betty Page and some sort of little uh, peak viewer uh, that they had in their pocket. That was that was another weird yeah. cut where suddenly the scene stops and the next thing you see is a is like I think Betty Page in a in a swimsuit. Well, like, and this really is what the hell is that? Yeah, I think that's why I'm inclined to call them grunts is because I think they are intended to be the comic relief. They are the comic relief. Unfortunately, the military. I actually 
didn't mention a lot about the military because they are the this weird when they're there they're like almost uh, Laurel and Hardy the pair of them mm-hmm. and it's like they add absolutely nothing to the film other than occasionally a little bit of exposition and an attempt at a couple chuckles. Yeah, and a little like it's almost like the running townspeople. They're there just to show you that this movie actually does have more than four people in it. Yeah, maybe maybe that's about it. We find out through them that the uh, general has left to walk the headquarters, <laughs> which is funny seeing a general walk. It's almost like he doesn't know how. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't that funny. <laughs> no, it's not. But when you think about, I mean, you know, the, the concept of it is funny, but like kind of the execution is kind of, eh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and this is actually a little bit more, a uh, little more of the editing of this film. He, he tells this joke and he makes this laugh and then he stops suddenly. <laughs> it's all, and it's literally like, oh, scene over. Right, right. It, it's not the, it, it it's an odd, odd cut, you know, Hey, Larry Buchanan, you know, <laughs> yes, a little bit. Exactly. Well, we see the general as he's making his way through the forest and he's attacked by one of Zontar's devices and it stings him in the back of the neck. Now, it's worth mentioning too. He sees this thing flying around. So what does he do? He pulls out Shoot his gun. <laughs> yep. Like any general in every, any movie you've ever seen in your life, if you don't know what it is, just shoot at it. I mean, well, this, Kurt threw a stick at it. Can it can be God's general silver. shot yeah, at it. Yeah, it can be flying. It could be. It, it can be anything except a pretty woman, and you just shoot at it. <laughs> well, <laughs> holy bad. cow, guys! Keith, back at Keith's, he's been apparently uh, trying to convince Kurt that he's been telling the truth and that Zontar is responsible for what is happening. Keith, I'm sorry. I can't believe anything of what you're saying. That doesn't surprise me, nor does it dismay me. (laughs) No one ever believed me. All right, Keith. All right. Let's say just for the moment that what you're saying is true. That a creature called Zontar has come from Venus and has shut down the world's power and is putting the world's population under its dominance. Now, if that is true, why aren't you fighting it? Because this superior intelligence, this Zontar, is working with me. After all, I was his first contact, and I contacted him. I believe he's here to save us from ourselves, not to dominate us, as you have so quickly concluded. Keith, you talk as if this thing were a personal friend of yours. Oh, yes, they're real chum. The days when people made fun of me are over. Uh, He's here to help us save ourselves? From what? From ourselves, Kurt. From ourselves. Oh. I, uh, I didn't know we needed rescuing. Kurt, I'm serious. Remember your theory on free magnetic gravitation? Mm Mm-hmm. What happened to it? It was a great theory. Well, you know, Keith, Washington red tape, I, I couldn't get an appropriation. Kurt, that was sheer stupidity. An example of how arrogance and ignorance restrain man's progress. I should know. I've been victimized by it myself. And Zontar is going to end all this? Yes. Quickly, easily. You'll hardly realize it's been done. How's he going to do it? How's Zontar going to pull this off? I can't tell you just yet, Kurt. It's premature for his plan. Premature. 
I love that. The days when people made fun of me are over. But then they Don't, they all yeah. bust up making fun of him. <laughs> Literally, the next three lines are the three people in the room with him making fun of him. <laughs> it's like, oh, poor Keith. He really yeah. he really doesn't have a realistic grasp on reality. Uh, yes, apparently he's a, uh, like he tells everyone that Zontar is here to help them save themselves. Yeah, and I think it's one of the Kurt's like, really? I didn't know we needed saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kurt is unconvinced and just asks Keith to take him home. Martha, again, <laughs> keeps trying to talk Keith down uh, to with no no effect. The general returns to the lab and tells everyone that they are in the middle of some sort of communist uprising because it's 1966. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the town is to be evacuated and the lab is to be quarantined. Quarantined. No one in or out. The commies would love to get a hold of you with your knowledge of the satellite. <laughs> now, is it just me or the lady with the beehive is her only line? I don't know. <laughs> just asking because she does seem to say oh, that oh. a lot. Yeah, I, I think she gets to do some quip about, oh, I guess we've got a lease we can't get out of or something. <laughs> When they find out they're going to be stuck in the lab. At least we got some dried food in the back. Yeah, dried food and blankets. Won't be easy, but we can do it. I want to backpedal a little bit. I've been mentioning that Martha's been trying to talk Keith you know, out of this, what she assumes is this Mania? craziness. Yes. Um, and I, I've been giving, kind of, giving her a little bit of short trip. Maybe I should go back and throw in a clip or two of her trying to convince him that you know what is happening isn't real. She tries really hard. And as... Just uh, the woman as an actress, actually, I think does a pretty good job at it. She is heads and tails above um, uh, Keith. I uh, can't even think of the actor's name. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and two, I think that's part of why I wanted to be clear at first that I think that the the impression that you get of the women is not being... At first, of them not being so bright is more about just, you know, the the writing. They were writing them in in the scene, not trying to give them a personality. They're not really given a lot of personality in this. The only real time that you see any time that she's not just protesting against Keith talking about all this, the one time she says, you know, I'm with you, but I'm not doing what you say because I think you're right. It's because I love you. And she's almost angry about it, you know. Mm -hmm. But they don't, it it keeps it a little bit, it's, it's. I, I don't want to be unkind, but it's very, all the characters seem very two-dimensional. Very much so. Uh, with the exception, I'll actually take this moment to actually mention the, how much I like the actress um, that plays Anne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Bierman, I think, is, is her name. Mm-hmm. An actress who did not do a, or actually uh, has worked off and on. Uh, this was her first film. And she worked off and on uh, up until even like um, within the last few years, I believe she had a uh, at least a reoccurring role or something on like Gilmore Girls. But it was only she would only appear like every few years. She would make an appearance on television or in a film or something like that. Right. But she just has this sort of obviously, like you were saying, they didn't write I, the women yeah. well. I don't think it's a reflection the, on the actors as much as it is hmm. the storyline is not intended to develop the characters. It's a very action driven movie. It's not right. a character-driven film. But this uh, particular actress, though, I think she tried to bring as much as she could to Anne with what she had. She just would, uh, she'd have the, 
just her facial movements. She'd have a little smirk when she needed the would you know when she needed a smirk. Mm-hmm. The way she uh, gave some of her lines, she would. It was just a little. She seems a little, little more, more spunky. Yeah, right. very natural uh, actress. It, so I really actually enjoyed watching her. Uh, for even though I mean it could have been a very thankless role, she didn't <laughs> need to do anything. Mm-hmm. But she actually brought a little bit of what, like you said, uh, naturalness to it that makes you kind of remember her. And it, she well, ends up doing a, pretty well against uh, with uh, with with Agar. And it sounds kind of weird, but she's not annoying. <laughs> and that's exactly that's high praise in some movies. <laughs> I mean, that really is high praise in some movies. And this is one of those where I think she could have easily got been lazy. I think you're right. I think any of the characters in this could have, and some of them we see the actors maybe being a little bit lazy with their parts or right. maybe just not exceptional actors. But, uh, but no, she and, and Kurt both, I'm going to call them by their characters because I do that. <laughs> but sure. both of them are, they're not hard to watch. They're not, you know, awkward you don't they're not wringing their hands as you mentioned mm-hmm. you know there's they're not making <laughs> yeah. unnatural gestures to try and get emotion across everything's very natural yeah in fact even the opposite I, at this uh this scene where they they return home and of course they they look around you know kurt tries the phone and uh and asks is it you know is, is it not work is it working or is it is it not working and Instead of turning and going, no, it's not, or he goes, uh-huh, yes, he gives I a very that. natural response. And I was like, wow, that just makes it a little, a little bit real. The two of them together actually make it really a little it. bit more real. Well, the town continues to panic, as you mentioned, uh, 20 minutes later. And I think this is probably the, <laughs> the first. That, here you go. Running. This is it. They're just running. Yeah. The first panic. <laughs> The first panic was because the power shut off. This is the panic because they're being evacuated. How oh, about that? Okay, maybe that makes sense. <laughs> exactly. I just assumed they were all running from one end of town to back to the other, and then just. Keep well, maybe running. they were. Maybe they were. <laughs> they they were running to one end, and someone and someone over there said, "Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're being evacuated the other way." <laughs> and then so they all screamed and ran the other way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, Kurt pulls out a bicycle from the garage of the house. So when you might not you might need to move this up mm. to the beginning when you first see everybody running here there's this bit where you see a rabbit like a stuffed rabbit dropped on the ground oh there's always got to be one of those and, scenes but, but yep. then it makes it makes no sense they don't just go come on leave it we got to get out of here they go back for the stuffed rabbit oh, of course <laughs> and i but no i mean it's it's now you would never get the the stuffed rabbit would be seen later floating in a pool of lava, you know. <laughs> but they actually go back for the little kid's stuffed rabbit, and it's yeah. it's funny and and awkward and also kind of like yay stuffed rabbit. But no, I just I just thought it was funny because it's not one of those things. Okay, this child does not need a stuffed rabbit, but they go back for it. So, like I said, that was completely different part of the movie, but. I don't know. I just thought of it. No, actually, I think that is the, actually this particular oh, panic it? scene. I think you have it right. <laughs> well, yeah. I just, I thought that was really remarkable. They keep, you know, don't worry about the people in the iron lung, but get the rabbit. <laughs> don't get the stuffed rabbit. <laughs> well, anyway, yep. Kurt pulls out a bicycle. Uh, he tells Anne that he's got to get to the lab and find out what in the world is going on. He instructs Anne to stay inside and keep the windows and doors locked. As uh, we see more of the uh, panicking evacuation of the town, uh, we see the sheriff attacked and taken over by one of Zontar's devices. 
right after this, I think the sheriff confronts the local paper's editor, uh, Mr. Ledford, I think his name was. And when the old man refuses to leave, the sheriff guns him down. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, Ledford helped build this town. He got he got the sheriff his job. <laughs> well, Kurt sees this and demands an explanation from the sheriff. Uh, they ended up having a little bit of a tussle. Sheriff admits that it was through Zontar's orders and that it, Kurt is to be one of them. Well, Kurt now knows that Keith was right. And, you know, actually, this brings us, this is about 45 minutes into just shy of a 120-minute movie. So I think that's about, I mean, there's stuff that we need to talk about, but that's about where I'm going to stop with the plot synopsis. Uh, one of the things I'm going to mention, and that kind of bugs me, a little bit like the uh, where they kind of let slide the fact that there are people dying all over the place without power, uh, our heroes make... There is absolutely no effort whatsoever. We know that we've seen the general taking over, we've seen the sheriff taking over. Obviously, these the people taking over, these aren't the only two. But at no point through the rest of the film is any effort made to save the people who've been taken over. Yeah, I mean, I guess they just said... Well, no, it is... It is. I do recall specifically, I believe, that um, Martha asks Keith... Okay, hold on. I could be getting this really mixed up, so if it's wrong, just kill it. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that Martha asks Keith and she says, what happens to those people? And he says, you know, they're, they're still who they are. They're totally fine. And she says, but they, they aren't themselves anymore. He's like, yeah, they're, they become a part of Zontar. They become, mm-hmm. you know, he, they just kind of grow into his collective conscious. And, uh, and it, it is interesting. I mean, they, they don't try to save them at all, but the way that Keith explains it, they are actually, they are Zontar at the point when they're right. taken over. Maybe. I just, I guess part of me just thinks that shouldn't this be sort of like uh, if you kill the vampire, then all the people he's enthralled will be okay? Uh, I, well, I, I, tell me when you find a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just too many vampire movies have ruined Zontar the thing from Venus but for me. That's what happened. That is a struggle for me watching movies that are, you know, in this case, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. I, I really struggle to forget this, the current psychology to watch it. You know, it's really hard to remember that a lot of the things, like I said, you know, that's when you start boarding up the windows so the zombies don't get in. You know, when you're watching these, it's something that you forget that 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 wasn't the mentality of the time. You know, if somebody knocked on the door then, they just wanted to borrow some sugar. You know, when horrible crimes happened back then, it was a really shocking thing. You know, people mm-hmm. just hear about it on the news every day. So it's interesting watching something like this, you know, where we take, we're like, well, why didn't they try to save him? Because in every movie that we see, they would always try and save him. But, exactly. You know, watching during this time period, it was like, well, if somebody's gone bad, you can't save them. They're bad. You know, right. it was good and bad and there wasn't a line between it. So, I mean, it's interesting that you brought that up because it's, I don't think we watch it intending to separate out our mentality from the mentality of the age, but in some things we have to. Yeah, maybe that's it. It just, it was something that really stood out to me, especially because uh, a couple of people that are taken over are, uh, without, without spoiling anything, are, are, are rather close to some of our heroes and, 
there's just absolutely no attempt to try to talk them down yes. or. To... And I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But it, I guess I didn't really question it because I, I think I'm maybe because I caught that, that scene, you know, when Keith is explaining to Martha, well, once they're, once they're taken over, you know, she really is adamant. Well, then they're gone. They just don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Keith doesn't seem to think there's a problem with it, but she thinks it's really horrible. So I suppose that, you know, considering that, that conversation just takes place, I believe, between Keith and Martha. It is a little strange. The rest of the people in the movie just kind of seem to know it without having the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Well, we even see uh, Kurt at one point sees the little like little antenna sticking out of the back of the general's neck. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, we'll pull him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after he, do, he does a little, uh, the Haikiba karate chop and knocks the general out. I'm like, well, just go ahead you try and to, try. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you try to take him out? You know, see what happens. Uh, but well, now we would, now we would dissect. Yeah. Everything. You know, and, and again, I guess it, uh, it's, that would, that would be story. And that would make the movie go longer than what they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> it would require too much effort, but no, I mean, it would definitely require the introduction of more characters and more time. But uh, overall, what did you think of Zontar, the thing from Venus? You know, it's it's a cheesy B flick. I mean, it's a perfect definition of a B film, mm-hmm. uh, of what people think of as a science fiction, you know, B picture. Mm-hmm. It really is. And there is some parts in it that aren't good. And there is some <laughs> bad, there is some bad editing. There is some bad true. directing. <laughs> I just, I'm a little surprised <laughs> that you said it so directly, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. There, there is some bad directing. There's some bad editing. Uh, there is some pretty bad acting. But I have to admit, it's still kind of fun to watch. It is. It's it's entertaining in the way that any cult film is entertaining. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's humor in it because there's inherent humor because we're watching something that's 50 years old, so it's a little bit funny, you know. But then there are still those pressing questions of, okay, well. You know, what, what would you do if some, if an alien creature came and you were promised that everything would be perfect if you just submitted, you know, would you consider it? That kind of thing. So, you know, it's like Star Trek. It's just, you know, as long as it's a question that humanity struggles with, it's always going to be entertaining, Mm -hmm. you know, regardless of the treatment of it or the area in which it was made. So entertaining is a good word for it. Uh, Intriguing and definitive film of the era, probably not a phrase I would use, but <laughs> but entertaining B film. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. That actually brings me up to the Othel ratings and I find myself torn on what to give it because do, do I rate it based on the quality of the film or how much fun I had watching it? <laughs> I, think that's, I, I mean, when we're, when we're rating it, it's our personal opinion, so it takes both of those into into effect. So I think that's why we're torn and end up giving half ratings a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think it's what I'm going to do with this one. I think I'm going to come in at probably like a two and a half uh, because of the, the, the quality issues. But I, yeah, I, as far as if I was just going to just go straight strictly on, hey, it's John Agar. There's some fun acting. There's some bad acting. It's this cheesy film. I would go you know, three or maybe three and a half. But if I'm going to take in the quality of the picture, uh, both in the uh, the copies that are available that you can find, you know, whether it's online <laughs> yes. or on one of the many, you know, DVD 50 classic sci-fi sets <laughs> or something, 
uh, the, the quality is not great. So I'm, I'm going to do a two and a half. I think that's fair. I actually, uh, one of the interesting things about this movie is it launches right in. There's no introduction. There are no titles, nothing like that. It just all of a sudden you're in it. I think it gives you the location. But but I it's one of those where it's a little confusing. You think, oh, did I miss the... If you were going out getting popcorn and you came in and there was a black screen and then that came up, you'd think, did I miss something? You know, right. so, oh, sure. so a lot of the direction is rough. Um, the cuts and the edits, you feel a little repetitive over time and confusing. That said, it's it's by far not the worst film ever made. <laughs> you know? nope. it's, it's really not. It is just a good classic kind of creature film. So we mm-hmm. know I love those. And, and really, I think my rating is going to come down to it being something that I don't think I'd watch it again and again, trying to catch every nuance, but it's something that I wouldn't mind putting on again, kind of if I didn't have to pay attention to it and then catching the little things, you know, as I'm multitasking. So that probably is way too complicated of an explanation than it, than it rates, but I would, I'm going to give it a two because I, you know, again, it's not the worst direction. It's not the worst acting, but it's, I think the writing comes in subpar, Mm. I think there's more that could have been done with it. And I think there's, it's questionable adding some of the characters that just didn't add anything to the movie. So, you know, short, short story long. <laughs> that way. <Yeah. laughs> to make a short story long, I would definitely, I think I'd go with two. All right. Very good. Well, you know, I think some of you were talking about some of the writing and you know, having the, some of the characters in that had do nothing, which I have to think we're, we're talking about a lot of the military men and everything. Yeah. A lot of that. There was so much of this. I mean, uh, Buchanan was given a script from a movie that was done 10 years ago. And they said, here, make this film again and make it cheaper. And so I think he was sort of stuck with the material that he had at hand. Now, why he couldn't have made the decision to excise some of that, I'm not sure. And maybe develop something else. Maybe that was the issue is he lacked the talent to develop in other places. So he really couldn't excise as much from the original script as maybe even he would have liked. I mean, who knows? Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, we don't really know the backstories to a lot of these because they've been lost to the, you know, from the original owners and, you know, not carried Mm -hmm. through and not gained as much attention uh, sometimes because they are subpar. I'm actually interested. uh, Buchanan wrote an autobiography and I'm tempted to now kind of look that up and see if there's some behind the scenes about the production of some of his films, in particular this one, of course. And just just to mm-hmm. see, you know, how much are we making wild stabs at guessing <laughs> why he <laughs> did what right he did. Now. Exactly. And, yeah. and how much of it was just a paycheck for him, too. You know, exactly. he's a director yeah. and he gets paid to direct movies. And, you know, if it's a passion project, then, you know, it's different than... In the, what in the '60s studios were cranking out how many movies every week, right? You know? Sure. And, and so to have, to, you know, to try and rate it on the scale with like Cleopatra or something where they spent millions of dollars on it, you know, it's not quite. I suppose it's not quite fair that we awful all of these on the same rating scale. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's a sliding scale. Yeah. It, there you go. It's a sliding scale for for a, you know for if you were going to go by genre. For a B monster movie, I would say this is probably a three or three and a half. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go just in general by by film rating, I'll say a two. Yep. No, I think that's fair. I, I, I think two and two and a half, I think those are good ratings for it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to watch. I, I, I mean, I'm glad you I – mean, we've been going through some pretty 
Um, we did some pretty heavy films. We did some pretty uh, lighthearted film, but they're going through the pre-code stuff. It's been a lot of fun. But I, I'm glad that you kind of decided to you, – you wanted to go a little bit of cheese uh, this cheese. month. And I'm glad you did because uh, <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy it as well. So it was, it was a good time. And we'll have to dig up Mr. Buchanan's work again because, like I said, at least three or four of his other films are available in public domain. Well, so. gosh, Naked Witches – Gosh, <laughs> if, that's not, if that's not a copyright, we have to do Naked Witches. I, I'm so curious, mostly because it was made also what in the in the 60s or so. So, so I'm guessing there's probably not too much of the former and maybe some of the latter as far as when it comes to the title. Probably there's probably some yeah. strategically placed bushes and pointy hats and things. <laughs> I'm imagining. But it would be interesting. Two to pointy see. hats? It'd be, well, it'd be interesting to see. Oh, gosh, Christopher. <laughs> yes, too. It'd be interesting to see, you know, it, whether this was just a, a fluke or if this is really his direction style and he cuts, you know, scenes. It, I think that when you're trying to explain it, there is so much dialogue information that it's hard to explain it with the scenes cutting so fast. Mm-hmm. So okay. it'd be interesting to see if he follows the that same pattern in another movie. Yeah, absolutely. I have fair warning. I think I have read though, that this film is kind of regarded as one of his better. Oh dear. <laughs> Definitely watch naked witches. Okay. <laughs> or any, I honestly, the, the titles are, are interesting to say the least. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, we will absolutely dig up Mr. <laughs> Buchanan stuff again. Well, that is going to do it for this month. I want to thank everyone for downloading Orphan Entertainment. Thank you very much. Thank you for subscribing to the YouTube channel. And thank you for joining our Facebook group. You are all very welcome. And I hope you... That doesn't sound right. Join us for Naked Witches. (laughs) (laughs) And possibly... (laughs) We'll see about Naked Witches. Well, Lydia, thanks very much. This was a good time. Thank you, Christopher. I love being here. All right. All right. We'll we'll talk to everybody later. <laughs> we'll talk to everybody later. I, <laughs> <laughs> and talk back. We love to hear from you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Keith Ritchie came to realize that the loss of his own life, that man is the greatest creature in the universe. He learned that a measure of perfection can only be slowly attained from within ourselves. He sought a different path and found... Death, fire, disillusionment, loss, war, misery, and suffering have always been with us, and we shall always strive to overcome them. But the answer is to be found from within, not from without. It must come from learning. It must come from the very heart of man himself. (laughs) 